Welcome to the Disaster Tough Podcast, where we talk about emergency management by emergency managers. We share stories, lessons, and tips to help keep you moving forward. I am John Scardina, the host. I share my experience as a former federal emergency response official who's responded to some of the most extreme disasters over the past decade. I now lead a private emergency management firm called Doberman Emergency Management that focuses on emergency planning, mitigation, and response. This podcast is brought to you by L3 Harris. L3 Harris is an amazing company. They provide communications for first responders all over the world. They created the Beyond Push to Talk app that allows your team to communicate between mobile devices and radios through encrypted lines, which makes it so much easier for the team. Even better, they are offering the Beyond app at no cost to agencies for a limited time. You have to check it out. L3Harris.com slash responder support or click on the show notes for details. Welcome back to the podcast show, everybody. It's your host, John Scardina, of course. Man, we're so excited to talk to you. Our good new friend, Amanda Sayak, today. She's from FEMA Region 10. She's the earthquake, tsunami, and volcano program manager up there. She's actually been with FEMA for about 10 years now. She was a risk analyst there for a while. She does after action reports. She did that for um, quite some time. In fact, um, she's also an adjunct professor at Western Washington University. She's been a, an emergency planner for the city of Redmond. Man, just so much experience. And we're so excited to be able to talk to her and be able to get her perspective on Again, Earthquakes, she's the Leslie Nope of Earthquakes. Amanda, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, John. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're really excited to, to have you on, like we said, and to kind of talk about those experiences. But uh, just for our listeners' sake, you know, I when I found your name and uh, some of those mutual connections, why did you choose to focus on more of that policy side of the house um, dealing with de- dealing with Earthquakes? Yeah, well, for starters, um, the the title Leslie Nope of Earthquakes um, was uh, I gave myself. Um, nice. It kind of started as a joke. So uh, Beyonce of Earthquakes was already taken. <laughs> I don't know if you are familiar with um, Lucy Jones, Dr. Lucy Jones out of California. Mm. She was with USGS. She's a seismologist. Um, she has just she's done an amazing job um, distilling scientific information and communicating it to the public about mm. earthquakes. Um, she started her own podcast recently. Um, she has a book. I actually have it right here. Oh, awesome. The big ones. Um, yeah. And there's actually on my, my LinkedIn, um, she actually signed, I met her um, back in March, right before COVID. And uh, she actually signed, signed my book for me. And I oh, totally had awesome. a, a fangirl moment, but um, she's often interviewed in California um, after earthquakes. Um, and she's, she's cited um, by the media as the, the Beyonce of earthquakes. And I can't compete with Beyonce. That's hilarious. <laughs> but um, I have a lot of strong personality parallels with Leslie Nope of Parks and Rec. And um, I'm just... I'm incredibly enthusiastic about mitigating earthquakes and want other people to be as enthusiastic about me. Mm. Um, so I, when you asked about, um, you know, why focus on risk and policy, um, you know, I, I grew up in Washington state. Um, I've, you know, survived, I've been through many earthquakes. Um, 
And I guess, you know, Region 10 is kind of my Pawnee. Uh, Region 10 is uh, <laughs> Alaska, Washington, Idaho, and Oregon. Very seismically active. Um, we, we know that earthquakes can happen and we know where they can happen and we know what can be damaged. We have mm. all of this data um, and scientific information to tell us all these things about earthquakes. Um, and we also have the science and engineering to design for them, to build stronger infrastructure. Uh, but building for earthquakes just isn't in the forefront of our land use mm. or our development decisions. And, um, you know, I just, I think we're so, we as, as um, you know, as humans, we often, uh, we reshape our natural landscape to meet our economic needs. And in doing that, we kind of push, you know, the environment, uh, you know, ecology, geology into the background. Mm. Um, and it's, it's reckless. And, um, you know, I, I am just very passionate about, um, you know, hoping that we can, uh, we can mitigate uh, quicker, um, you know, before Earth decides to, you know, <laughs> throw the, the next big one our way. Yeah, I mean, oh my gosh, studying earthquakes and studying natural disasters there's so many natural disasters that have been perpetuated and you know amplified because of the way that we impact with our environment uh, a couple of really e easy examples and this is more like uh hurricanes but uh with <laughs> nice nice what's your dog's name dog decided she, uh, this is zoe she's decided that she wants to say hello hi zoe I'm gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> that's awesome that's totally staying in too that's awesome uh, yeah, I've I've thought about starting like her own Instagram page because her tail always pops up in the that's background. That's hilarious. You should totally should, yeah. Um, <laughs> well, hello Zoe. Um, we have cats. I hate cats, but we have cats. <laughs> so there you go. Um, yeah. So so going back to like earthquakes and and hurricanes and natural disasters, kind of thought um, the the two easy ones that come to mind are uh, when Louisiana got rid of their marshes. And that amplified hur hurricanes, and now it's impacting Louisiana, you know, so much more. And they're trying to figure out ways to uh, to put that back, and including I was out there, uh, and they were they had a five year plan to spend twenty million dollars every five years to to re put sand back in that area. Uh, they're losing like a football field of land uh, every hour, something crazy like that. And I was like, that's just not sustainable. And so, uh, you know, talking about what you can do and mitigating and working with your environment. Um, talk about, you know, going back from that reckless idea to, to more of a sustainability idea. Why do you think that, um, you know, this is kind of off the cuff, but why do you think that it's so hard for people to, especially in an earthquake prone area to, to really put in those uh, mitigation efforts? Hi dog. Um, Hi Zoe. Yes, she's, she's very affectionate. Um, well, I think that, um, you know, people, well, for starters, it's the geologic timescale is just so different from the human timescale. Um, I think that, you know, if, if I had, you know, a quarter for every time somebody said, well, it's never happened in my lifetime, or I've lived here for 30 years and it's never happened. Um, you know, like that, that's in, inconsequential. It doesn't matter. Yep. Earthquakes happen on a much larger timescale. And I think that, uh, you know, people just, they think it's not going to happen to them or they, they feel so distanced. They don't feel like they are part of 
the environment. Um, they, they feel removed from it. And I think that, um, you know, part of that is because of the way that we've built, you know, we used to build, uh, you know, uh, near like our, our, our big port cities now, the cities didn't used to be built up next to the port. They were moved away from them because they, people were more attuned um, with, uh, you know, wind and rain events and flooding events. But as our uh, our ability to build, our ability to construct the built environment uh, to protect ourselves from that increased. Um, we started building closer to water, and then it was, you know, we all want these views. Um, but you know, when people tell me, um, you know, well, there's, um, you know, the, there, there hasn't been an earthquake since I've been here. You know, in, in Seattle, I like to point at Mount Rainier and say, well, what do you think built that? You know, <laughs> um, <laughs> that's hilarious. The, the mountains that we love, um, are created by earthquakes and, yeah. um, to, to think that <laughs> processes that created those no longer exist because we're here. Um, it just, it just doesn't make sense. So, um, that's a very you know, wise think, statement like, actually, just because. Um, you know, I'm here now doesn't mean the processes have changed, you know, you know, mm -hmm. science doesn't change based off of your opinion, right? Yeah, well, it, so it's funny, um, I'm a big supporter of uh, national parks and public lands. And um, I actually I have a sticker on my water bottle that says keep it wild. Nice. And um, I, I love it because um, I mean, and don't, don't get me wrong. I want to keep our public lands public and, and, you know, keep them protected, but also just because we're here doesn't mean that those lands aren't wild anymore. Um, mm. you know, the, the subduction zone off of the coast of, uh, of Washington and Oregon is going to continue going whether we build here or not. So, um, yeah. you know, it's, uh, those, yeah, th those things are happening. Um, mm. and I think, uh, you know, really, um, and I'm just, I'm a super nerd when it comes to, to geology. Um, but, uh, you know, when we have the big earthquake, I would really like to be able to enjoy, you know, the, the raw power mm. that is nature happening, you know, like that yeah. mountain building processes are, are happening. And I'd like to not be concerned for the life and safety of my loved ones. Um, yeah. I would rather be able to appreciate, you know, the, the power of, of geology of, you know, that's awesome. <laughs> that, yeah. That, that's that makes, it makes me sound so nerdy. No, you know I what? Know hey, did, we're all, everybody's listening to this is probably nodding their head right now because uh, it's the same thing with, uh, you know, tornadoes or any other major disaster that you can observe. If it doesn't impact people or systems, it's just cool. Yeah. That's why we all like the weather channel, right? It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's cool to see it. The weather channel. Yeah. The most exciting channel on TV. <laughs> Uh, that's hilarious. Um, I, well, I think about like explosions in movies and stuff like explosions in movies are always cool. And yet when this happens in real life, people are like, oh, my gosh, you know, and that just shows that if it's impacting people, then it's a bigger deal. Right. Uh, gender exactly. reveals, you know, gender re reveals can be exciting or they can be super dangerous. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so you talk about earthquakes and the awareness of earthquakes and kind of that timeline. Well, there's another problem in emergency management that I found is that like when I go into uh, into a, a contract or I work with different agencies and they're making their plans, 
I'll often find like different types of flood, riverine flooding, flash flooding, you know, inundation, all the kind of different stuff that you can have. But then when I look at earthquakes, it's like the earthquake plan. And so like there's so many different types of earthquakes and what can be caused by those earthquakes. And so can you just kind of run through uh, helping our listeners understand like the different types of earthquakes and those impacts of those earthquakes? Yeah. Um, well, and I guess, and you touched on this a little bit, you know, the, the earthquake isn't the disaster. It's the crumbling of the built environment that is the disaster. Um, you know, if there's an earthquake, um, you know, where there's nothing, you know, uh, we get, we get these um, notices of, you know, pretty large earthquakes in Alaska fairly regularly. And, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing up there, um, you know, where the, the earthquakes are happening. So it's like, it's not, a, it's, it doesn't make the news. It's not a big story because there's, there's nothing there. So, um, you know, it's, it's the built environment that is really the issue when it comes to earthquakes. Um, but, you know, to your, to your question about the different kinds of earthquakes, um, you know, some earthquakes happen deeper um, in, the, in the crust. And um, so those are typically your subduction zone type earthquakes. They're, they're often larger magnitudes. Um, but then there's also the, the um, more shallow earthquakes um, that uh, can actually be more damaging because if the earthquake is happening closer to, uh, closer to the, the surface, um, then those seismic waves are going to be stronger. Um, so you're going to have higher intensity. So that's often why, um, you know, he, you'll hear people say, you know, a magnitude six, um, but we often refer to intensity rather than magnitude um, because intensity is the, the level of shaking felt as opposed to the amount of energy released from that earthquake. Um, but you can have, um, you know, an earthquake, um, uh, I guess a good example, um, the Cascadia earthquake off the Washington coast, um, Washington, Oregon, um, you know, the, the shaking from that will be, uh, will be intense, um, but a Seattle fault earthquake, so there's a fault that runs right underneath downtown Seattle, um, a, a, an earthquake on that fault could potentially be more damaging to, um, to Seattle than the Cascadia earthquake, even though it would be a smaller magnitude. Um, but you know, then there's also um, volcanic earthquakes that can happen, um, and those are often, you know, smaller magnitude, but they can be very, uh, very shallow because it's it's you know magma moving in, in chambers. Um, but then there's also the, the cascading effect. So uh, an, a subduction zone earthquake um, in the ocean. Is likely going to result in a tsunami, whereas a crustal earthquake, um, you know, not in the ocean, isn't going to have a, a tsunami. Or um, the San Andreas Fault, for example, um, rather than um, a subduction zone earthquake, is um, is going to there's going to be up and down movement. Um, and a transform earthquake like the San Andreas, it's it's side to side motion. So um, the movie. Uh, San Andreas has a big tsunami in it, and that's totally not <laughs> realistic. That's hilarious. <laughs> that's yeah. Well, that whole movie is pretty unrealistic, so yeah. yeah. Yeah, it doesn't make it not fun to watch. That's true. Yeah, you should watch it. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. So it, it's cool to talk to like a, a like a true expert because when when we have people come on here and they're able to talk about their expertise, you can really hear the, like the passion. But um, you know, to to be able to un better understand that and and in terms of intensity too, like 
to be honest, like I even focus on magnitude. Like, uh, and so just going in and thinking about intensity, the biggest earthquake I've ever dealt with uh, by far is um, the tsunami uh, disaster in uh, Japan and mm-hmm. uh, helping out with that relief. And that was like a 9.0. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that was pretty catastrophic, obviously 20,000 deaths. Um, and a lot of that was, I want to say a lot of that, but there was a portion of that that could have been mitigated. Um, and um, just by the way that res- resources responded to that, um, unfortunately, we had loss of life. Um, mitigation is, is such a huge thing for earthquakes. In fact, the episode that is the 9-11 episode today, because um, we're re-recording this, right? Um, we talked about how to mitigate so many of the d- different t- types of disasters out there, and some you can't. Earthquakes, you really could, though, if you just had better planning, right? Mm-hmm. Better planning and, and yet better design. Yeah, absolutely. So whether you're an emergency manager or you're an urban planner, you're thinking about, uh, so for example, in D.C., we were looking at um, where to put a new facility. And so we, we were asked to do a hazard vulnerability assessment on different areas. Um, if I was going to be an emergency manager and looking at risk maps and trying to understand earthquakes, again, that view is different than my 30-year perspective, a 300-year perspective, whatever. And now thinking about intensity, how do you think emergency managers should approach better understanding of risk maps? Yeah, so um, honestly, my, my first words of advice would be to get outside and get away from your computer. Mm. I don't know how many plans I have reviewed where um, you know, they're, they're showing all of these red dots on maps and they're saying, mm. you know, this is going to be damaged and this is going to be damaged and it's going to be this much economic loss. Um, but what does that actually mean for the community that you're planning for? Is that one red dot, is that a residential structure or is that, you know, public housing or, you know, multifamily, you know, low income disadvantaged population? Um, what happens when, um, you know, there's, there's tourists in that area or what happens to the homeless population? Um, you know, as we've seen with COVID, people with, um, you know, gig-based jobs um, are severely impacted. So I think, you know, data is, is really great to help us uh, understand numbers and help us inform response plans but I think we're often missing the people component with the data and the, the analysis that goes into these. So what, if this is all, if this is all red, you know, let's sit down and meet with our public works department and talk about the roads that we show will be damaged and the bridges um, or, you know, meet with city hall or the department of commerce and talk about, you know, what is going to happen to um, you know, the status quo of the city if uh, we are uh, tourism based and uh, our tour season is canceled. I mean, look at the state of Alaska right now, but you know, their, um, their primary economy is based in tourism and fishing mm. and fishing season from COVID has been drastically impacted and their right. tourism season was canceled. And then I guess their, their third is oil and we've seen the costs of oil drastically decline. So the state is really struggling right now between, you know, COVID and, and earthquakes and, yeah. um, you know, ha- and data alone isn't going to show you that. So um, yeah. I, I guess I would say that um, emergency managers, uh, 
should help facilitate the planning process, you know, come with the data, but you really need to bring in, you know, the community planners, the public works people. Um, I mean, every plan, every community should have some sort of master plan or comprehensive plan describing their vision for the next 20 years and what they want to do and where they're going to grow. And, you know, the emergency manager doesn't have that expertise, um, yeah. but they can certainly help facilitate the, well, if you want to achieve these growth numbers, maybe let's not put all of the new tech industry in, um, <laughs> you know, a highly liquefiable area in an earthquake zone, uh, wow. you know, looking at you, a Amazon. <laughs> yeah, seriously. So, um, you know, there's a, there's a big disconnect there. And then you get people moving for jobs and, you know, they assume, well, the government wouldn't let me live here if it wasn't safe. Mm. But then there's that probability of, well, you know, it's a low uh, probability, high consequence event. So how much do we prioritize those increased costs of engineering? Um, and I guess I do want to just preface, um, I'm not encouraging like extreme prepping, you know, over designing everything. <laughs> There's always here. that fine line, right? Yeah. There, it's always a fine line. But, um, you know, I think we should be asking experts for their input. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, when we buy a car, we're not buying, the car isn't designed around the seatbelt and the airbags, but those are a component to the car that we expect to have and we expect it to perform mm. as, you know, perfectly. And um, I think that we could certainly improve uh, the, the designing and the community engagement in the design of our built environment um, so yeah. that it's not engineers and developers saying, you know, we're going to build to life safety performance levels, um, which is what building codes generally are. Um, and maybe ask the community's input on, well, maybe we actually want this structure to be uh, functional after an earthquake. Um, and not like not unusable. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. I was um, I was at Fort Bragg or near Fort Bragg in here in California about a month ago, and uh, we were camping, and um, I went into uh, across a bridge that said earthquake, you know, uh, or not earthquake, it's a tsunami threat zone, and uh, when we got to the campsite, uh, I just pulled up a pulled up a map and looked at the road systems and the only road system that was able to leave that entire area was a, was a bridge. Well, there's two bridges on either side and none of the, none of the roads that would have gone up into the mountain, uh, actually, actually went up there. Like they, they stopped at the end of the neighborhood. There was no forethought about, uh, you know, evacuation routes even. And I was mm -hmm. like, so you want people to try to evacuate through bridges if there's, you know, a tsunami, which is accompanied by an earthquake or the earthquake causes the tsunami. Right. And so there's, there needs to be a lot more forethought about how people are impacted. I, mean, I, I love that po uh, points on a map analogy. Um, there's a lot of people who work in data who, um, yeah, they never get beyond the computer. Like you have to actually get out there. Um, I think the emergency manager of the future will be much more involved in response and talking to survivors and helping people out. I really do believe that. It's just like the trend of where it's going. Um, and that will help. But, uh, you know, obviously, number one always, well, mostly is, you know, life saving, right? 
there's very rare circumstances where you have to think of uh, of systems more important than life because the in- immediate impact of life in this one area could, you know, the domino effect of a system could impact, you know, globally. You have to think about, you know, those, those different levels of impact. Um, but again, yeah, like you'll show that point on the map. Um, 2017 wildfires, they did a bunch of points on a map. We went out there and several of those structures that were burned were just, um, were just like uh, fake structures that they had on a uh, shooting range. Like that doesn't like that, that doesn't mean anything that like that, who cares, you know? Um, but like it, when you get into the residential areas, when you get into lo- low income, um, another one that came to mind was, um, I was asked to do, uh, a theoretical on, uh, how to evacuate, uh, a town, uh, that had 110,000 people, but 10% of that were homeless. So how do you get the homeless out? And, uh, I was like, you already have a disaster because you have 11,000 people who are homeless. You want to evacuate 11,000 people in a disaster. And so there was like this argument of like, don't fight the exercise, but like, screw that, man. Like you, you have to think of the real problem. The real problem is taking care of this situation. Now, um, you know, people of low income, people of, uh, uh, lower on the socioeconomics, uh, you know, the list, they often get marginalized and they are the number one reason why we have high death and disaster. So a big shout out to you for just calling that out. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think, you know, you, you just articulated it, I think better than I did. And I I think it's, (laughs) um, you know, a, how do I, how do I say this? Social injustices, economic disparities, Um, those are only going to be exacerbated in a disaster. So, you know, I, I've gotten very frustrated working with cities where I, you know, I try and talk about earthquakes and they go, well, right now we're just trying to deal with our homeless problem. Like, well, that is great that you're trying to deal with that, but what are you going to do with this homeless problem once the earthquake hits? And then you have, you know, an even larger homeless problem because you have unreinforced masonry structures and you have tourists Mm. and, you know, you, your, your population is going to double and, you know, and then what if it's during COVID and you can't do mass sheltering as, you know, yep. per your regular plan. So I think um, 2020 is certainly going to result in a whole lot of uh, after actions mm. for, for our community, for, for our community, for the emergency manager. I like community that. You can call and, it our um, community. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So um, yeah, there's there's a lot to learn, and I think we're we're really uh, getting to see how interrelated all of the different fields are. Um, I've done a lot of teaching, uh, and I, I it's funny. I feel like every few years there's a group of students that are really interested in one specific thing. When I was mm. in grad school, everybody wanted to do uh, either transportation planning or climate change planning. And now it seems like a lot of students really want to be involved in uh, social justice. Like, well, all of these things are also, you know, emergency management planning. So it's, um, you know, social justice should be integrated into every element of planning, um, whether that's housing or uh, transportation. So um, it's surprising it's not a given, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like these are people like hello like i don't i just don't get it. like 
I, I mean, I do get it. I get why. I get politics gets involved and everything else and uh, money. Uh, but at the end of the day, like, a, a great emergency manager is also a great humanitarian. And if you mm-hmm. take out the humanitarian piece, I mean, you're, you're, I, in my perspective, you're not very good at your job because it's all about life-saving, life-sustaining. And uh, what I would say is keeping dignity. Um, there's been disasters I've been out to where uh, no no wonder people, their their level of, you know, potential PTSD is through the roof or their stress is through the roof because you strip everything away from people and you don't allow them to do anything, even allowing them to grab their own food, something that allows them to feel like, you know, I'm dignified. Uh, I'm, 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 I can be still respected. I lost my home, but I'm still here. And, uh, I think we can do a much better job on, on that. So man, talk about, we could do an entire episode on that. So Oh, we totally could. And I think I would just add that I don't know if it's the emergency manager's job to know all of the things, right? Like, like bring in people. Like don't, if you don't know enough about the subject or about the issue, bring in the person who does. And I, I think that's really the emergency manager's role is to bring in the experts that do know what they're doing and help them coordinate and facilitate the response and um I, and I would say the recovery. And also, you know, if you can bring everybody together beforehand uh, to incorporate disasters into community planning, then it sure makes uh, the response better. And then it often prevents it from actually being a disaster. So it's just an event and not, uh, not something that requires, you know, FEMA or yeah. other yeah. response agencies to step in. My, my brain is just going like on rapid fire right now. Uh, speaking of what we'll be doing on the end, but yeah, really great ideas that you're um, presenting. And I, th- I think um, this will cause a lot of people to think, um, but you mentioned after actions. And so I just want to go through um, talking about earthquakes, tsunamis and uh, volcanoes, some major disasters throughout history, lessons learned that we can grab from there. And uh, just, you know, kind of hear your perspective if you're cool with that. Um sure. Yeah, so let's talk about 2004 Indian Ocean disaster. What were some of the after actions from that and, and some of the big points there? Yeah, so that was, um, so it was a magnitude nine earthquake. It was a subduction zone earthquake. Um, so like I said earlier, if you have a subduction zone earthquake, especially, you know, uh, oceanic, you're going to end up with a tsunami. Um, there were a lot of lessons learned from that. Um, the Indian Ocean uh, did not have a tsunami warning system set up. Um, and so that resulted in a lot of deaths. Um, you know, it was, it was absolutely tragic. Um, we did learn, um, you know, there was, there are some like really wonderful heartwarming stories of people that recognized the signs of a tsunami before it happened. So, you know, um, there were um, a couple of different tribes, um, native tribes in the area that through their oral histories, they had known about, you know, when there's an earthquake, go to high ground so that you're not hit by the tsunami. Um, There's also, uh, you know, this amazing story of this little 10 year old girl who had just learned in like her geology class um, in, you know, in like elementary school that you know, when the sea um, sucks out, which often happens before a tsunami ha- uh, occurs, um, when the sea sucks out, that that's a, a precursor to a tsunami. And so you should get to high ground. And she saved 
um, you know, she saved like 100 people. It really shows the value of public education and awareness and how, um, you know, whether it's oral histories and, you know, communicating, like these are the warning signs, this can happen. Um, you know, public education really helps um, for, for, for saving lives. And I think that's a good part of preparedness. I think, um, you know, there's a, there's this weird line of tension between mitigators and preparedness folks, um, because mitigation is, is not preparedness, um, but sometimes, sometimes it is. Um, so, well, and I guess, you know, I think preparedness is often treating a symptom in my book. So like your duck cover, hold on, um, for an earthquake, that's, you know, you're, you're preparing for the shaking, but I think mitigating is actually reducing the losses yeah. beforehand. Yep. Um, but, but anyways, um, you know, the public education component, I think is, um, you know, you're, it, it's preparedness and mitigation. You're, you're educating people so that you're preventing loss of, you're mitigating loss of life. Mm. Um, but anyways, um, yeah, that the 2004 Indian Ocean um, event, you know, we learned the, the value of public education for sure. Um, but we also learned a lot about um, the impacts that a tsunami can have, um, especially in densely populated areas. Um, so we, we learned a lot about, um, you know, evacuate, how to, um, we learned a lot about tsunami warnings and, and how to improve that system. Uh, we learned that um, we need to provide better evacuation planning, um, including um, that actually created, um, led to the creation in Washington of the, um, it's called Project Safe Haven, and it's like a community planning effort mm. to talk about where a tsunami can go. And in Washington, you don't have a lot of high ground that's accessible from the coast. Um, and so I, you know, through a ton of effort on the state of Washington and emergency management um, and the University of Washington, um, and now FEMA is, is actually supporting it, um, but we're, we're building um, vertical evacuation towers on the coast of Washington. So it's, you know, it's a last resort effort, um, but if there is nowhere to evacuate to, you can't get to high, high ground before the tsunami happens there will be these structures there that you can ride out the wave in. Like it's not gonna be a pleasant experience for anybody, right. but it's better than dying in a tsunami. Um, and then it also really jump-started some efforts in Oregon. Um, they have some tsunami, um, they have a berm. Um, so they have like this high ground that they've put trails and signage in um, to help, like you were talking about your trip to California to help you know guide people from the beach up to higher ground um, and they've also Oregon has um, it's called the blue line project mm. and uh, they um, some cities have chosen to paint the evacuation route on the road um, so that you can oh, cool. actually follow that um, and uh, this town Cannon Beach um, it's uh, famous from Goonies um, <laughs> I don't know if you remember that movie um, <laughs> I'm American yeah, yeah the big rock yeah. and the Goonies it's a, it's yeah. a <laughs> um, so they actually did, um, and FEMA helped them um, a number of years ago, but they did a tsunami fun run where yeah. they actually did like a, a, I think it was a 5K maybe, but they, they went from the beach. Um, it was a run from the beach up the hill to the, the evacuation point. Oh, that's they actually cool. actually have like a cache of um, preparedness materials uh, or preparedness stuff. 
Like, if you did it in 30 minutes, did they tell you that your life was saved? Because like, right? Like you they, got, yeah. <laughs> they did joke around like, well, if you're, you know, if it's, if you're under 20 minutes, then you survived. Um, oh my gosh. That yeah. freaks me out. Especially after like, uh, like, like I said on uh, Japan. So, okay. This is a random question. I, I got to really understand yeah. this uh, better, but those evacuation towers, we did a hazard vulnerability assessment for the state of Washington, um, in my master's program and looking at, yeah, looking at all these different things and seeing those schools and those communities on the coastal regions, um, that would be impacted by those. And then seeing those towers after watching Japan, who has some of the best building codes on earth and just those, those buildings just being wiped out. I mean, we're talking about massive schools being wiped out. How, how reliable really are those towers? Yeah, so um, that, and that's a great question. Thank you for asking it. Um, the Japan event, so um, it gets a little technical here, but the, the Japan event, um, their vertical evacuation uh, structures were designed for the most probable event, not for the worst case scenario. And the event that happened, uh, that magnitude of earthquake, um, wasn't anticipated. They did not think an earthquake that large would ever happen. Mm. So we, we learned a lot um, about, you know, mapping tsunamis and understanding potential inundation and, you know, the, the, the depth and the velocity of tsunami waves from that event. Um, and we, we've learned, you know, you, <laughs> for vertical evacuation, you should design it for the worst case scenario, not for the most probable events yeah. and that does mean higher costs generally um but you don't want to be uh you don't want to repeat what happened in japan and then um right. also a lot of the the seawalls and things in japan um unfortunately created this uh this mindset that people didn't need to evacuate that they mm. were protected by the seawalls and um, you know, Washington and Oregon are, are really being vocal that, you know, these evacuation towers um, and these, these reinforced buildings are last resort. You know, if you can get out and get to high ground, that's your best effort. Yeah. Um, you, like, you don't want to be in one of these towers. Um, no. I, I, it's, I, it's better <laughs> than nothing. <laughs> yeah, good point. Better than nothing. I, it freaks me out. Um, yeah, just thinking about that, and um, man, I, my heart really like aches for those people who live in those communities because um, their livelihoods, everything's based there, right? Schools, work, you know, maybe multi generational, whatever, building your own home, the whole deal, all those emotions, and then um, you know, without proper planning uh, or mitigating, really, um, there could be. There could be some catastrophic impacts. Yeah, so Japan actually had, um, it's, it's really interesting. They have these, um, in, in some areas, there's these tsunami stones that are, you know, like hundreds of years old. A thousand years um, old. A thousand years old. Yeah, that yep. say, don't, don't build homes here, you know, build above this. And um, my, uh, my, uh, my, my group of uh, uh, mitigators that I work with um, out here in Region 10, we always joke, 
don't put important stuff in stupid areas. And, you know, that's essentially <laughs> what those, what those tsunami stones were saying was like, this is not a good place, but we, we forget or we think it won't happen to us. And man, we all love a good view, don't we? Yeah. That, I mean, that, that you bring up a, such a good point because I, I love that story because when they built like those stones and they built those walls, we were actually able to see over generations then moving further and further towards or closer and closer towards the coast like each generation would say like oh i'm i can still see the stone oh it's just over the hill over it's just like this and so uh wow talk about um like biggest frustration ever for an emergency manager but we have in the united states a, a majority now of our population living on a coastal line Right. Mm -hmm. And it's quickly moving there. People are moving towards the coast, um, maybe with the pandemic, because people don't have to live uh, on those one of these communities. Maybe they'll start moving inland. I hope they don't before I sell my house. I think, well, in Washington, I think it's the, the reverse. People are getting out of Seattle and headed out towards the coast. You cannot find a, a cabin or anything out there right now. Oh, my gosh. Um, because if you don't have to commute in, then why not go and live in a beautiful area? Right. Yeah, and so that that does bring up like, okay, don't be a doomsday prepper. You can't live near the coast, but just being aware of uh, your specific community's like threats are are mm -hmm. so huge. And so, um, just talking about maybe a couple other disasters, um, we don't want to take up yeah. too much of your time, but um, you know, going through the the nineteen sixty four uh, Alaskan earthquake, I mean, that decimated a, a, the community there. Um, a lot of problems. Um, so. What are some of the lessons learned and I guess uh, some of more of those impacts because they are a little different than the Indian Ocean? Yeah, so um, the, the 64 event was a magnitude 9.2. Um, so you're, I don't know if you've been paying attention, but there's a theme here. Subduction zone earthquakes cause really big earthquakes and yeah. subsequent tsunamis. Um, so that earthquake, uh, you know, caused a ton of landslides, uh, you know, a lot of fires, um, tsunamis, you know, down in Washington and Oregon and California. Um, but we learned a, a ton from that event in terms of seismic design and, um, you know, impact to transportation systems. The town of Valdez, Alaska was actually relocated um, further, I think, I want to say it was further west. I didn't um, know that. Just yeah, they learned. You taught that, like, me something the, today. Yay, I feel so Valdez excited. Moved. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so they, they moved the town to a safer spot um, so that it wouldn't be as badly impacted from tsunamis or earthquakes. Mm. Um, uh, it certainly improved tsunami warning systems and um, helped contribute to uh, the development of tsunami sirens and the, uh, the Pacific uh, tsunami warning system. Um, and also, it, um, it really did instill, like, especially in Alaska, um, seismic design as, um, uh, as a priority. So the, the Trans-Alaska Pipeline, um, you know, the, like the giant oil pipeline that runs through Alaska, they've actually, yeah. it's an amazing engineering project, um, but the pipeline is actually built um, like in zigzags on these big rollers so that if there's an earthquake, the pipe can actually like move with That's the earth cool. and not rupture. And um, I had a, 
a meeting up in Fairbanks for work or a training. And I drove up and like took a selfie with it. <laughs> like, I'm such a nerd, but it's, oh, it's so awesome. cool that we can design for these things. And we have the, the science, we have the knowledge to do it. We mm. just often don't because it's expensive or it's going to slow the, the project. Right. But mm. You know, it's also going to slow your project a lot more when, you know, the pipeline breaks and, you know, you've, you've got a huge fire to deal with. So, um, that is the right answer. The, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, but what, what's interesting, um, is that that 64 earthquake, Alaska was really gung ho about seismic design. And then, um, in 2018, Alaska had an earthquake at the end of November. And it didn't get a lot of press um, because it's Alaska, it's far away. And I think like two days after the earthquake, um, President George Bush Sr. died. And so the media was like, oh, bigger news. Um, but uh, downtown Anchorage fared really well in that earthquake. Um, downtown Anchorage does a lot with building codes um, and building code enforcement. Um, but you know, Alaska is the last frontier. You've got a lot of people that are kind of like my property. Don't tell me what to do with it. Yeah. Um, and we found that there were a lot of residential homes that suffered significant damage because they weren't built to code. Um, the, there was code, but it wasn't enforced. And, um, you know, it's, it's unfortunate because, um, yeah, there's Zoe. <laughs> there you, you see the tail. Yeah. Um, but, uh, Anyways, like building residential structures for to be uh, safer in an earthquake is not that challenging to do. And there, there's no reason. And I mean, I think, you know, as a, um, and I, granted, I'm probably not the best person to ask, but if somebody was like, here's this house for $300,000, um, you can pay 325000 and it's, you know, earthquake resilient. Mm. Yeah, I'm going to spend the money on that. So um, I think... Uh, you know, Alaska is, is doing some re, some revisiting on building codes and the value of them. And, you know, it's resulting in lawsuits against developers and things for not building properly and, you know, suing the city for not enforcing. So it gets really political really quick. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the earthquake in Alaska in eight, 2018, it wasn't their big one. Um, and so the, ama the amount of damage that they had to schools and residential structures which is, you know, the people, sure, the city is fine, but if the employees right. of the city aren't safe, then the economics of the city are going to decline. Yeah. So, um, you know, they're, they're learning and they're, they're getting lots of uh, mitigation projects going right now. That's cool. And I'm sure FEMA is helping out a lot with that. So that's really awesome. Yeah. Um, man, everything you say, like, I just want to make like an entire episode just about that. Cause like I have so many questions and, and ideas and you're saying really great things here. Um, talk about uh, a true expert in, in, in your field. And, um, you know, I really appreciate it. Um, you're talking about Alaska and everything happening there. Um, I think about my own family preparedness and um, how grateful I am to understand data and risk. Um, we, each time we've moved, uh, I had this funny story with uh, a realtor a realtor came in and was wanted to, us to, to look at these different houses. And I was like, I'm never going to live here, 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 and here. And he was like, uh, he's like, dude, like they're cool areas. Like, nope, not, not going to happen. Like there's going to be a, an economic decline in this area because of poor school systems. And there's going to be, you know, uh, their, their grid is set up just terribly. Uh, we want to be on a grid, the same hospital, the, the same uh, electronic grid as a hospital and all these different things that these parameters that I, I put it in. The guy was just like, all right, dude, 
Like you tell me where you want to go. And, um, I felt like he was like trash. So he got out of there. And then the next realtor that came in, I opened up a binder. Actually, it wasn't a binder. I opened up my laptop and I said, let me just go through this real quick with you and let you know these areas that we're willing to live in. And you fast forward, you know, three, four years. And there's been several events in, um, in California. And yet, uh, you know, we haven't been impacted them by them yet. We know what our dis- potential disasters will be and we're, we're preparing for them, but we also can mitigate in a way that uh, is logical, getting away from that doomsday prepper and saying, okay, like this is just what's going to impact my community. How do I deal with that? Whether it's wildfires or whatever, you want to be able to, to, to mitigate those, um, you know, those threats. So you're, you're saying amazing things here. Um, talk about National Preparedness Month, really great advice. Um, we talked about Japan a little bit, and so I, I kind of want to move on from that and talk about a new Madrid because uh, I have been to so many exercises, whether I was in FEMA at national level exercises, NLEs, or uh, t- talking about those on teams, federal agencies were talking about that when I was t- with different groups. I was with the Red Cross for a year. That wasn't even going to be close to New Madrid, but everybody always talks about that. And um, uh, 1811 is the last time where I can really see like a real impact from there. Mm-hmm. What were some of the lessons learned from that disaster? And is it really that big of a threat uh, uh, now? Yeah. So um, 1811 was a very long time ago. Um, but, and that, that event, it was three separate large earthquakes in a three month period. So December through February. So it's winter for starters. So it's cold, probably windy, blizzardy, snowy, um, so anything that's going to, you know, potentially impact your house or your heat, add winter in, and then it's, it's, you know, cascading impact. That's a bigger issue. Um, but, uh, you know, at the time, 1811, that area was incredibly rural. Um, mm. if you fast forward to now, the amount of infrastructure in that area is, is huge. And, right. um, St. Louis. It, yeah. Yes. And so, you know, if you remember the, the earthquake in DC a number of years ago that, uh, you know, it was a, it was a small earthquake. 2012, um, 2013. Oh yes. man. What year was I, that? I don't remember the year. Off they the didn't even know about the fall line. Right. And then all of a sudden, yeah. boom. Yeah. 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 Well, and I, you know, the, the East coast is very different from the West in that the West coast has all of this glacial soil that sits on top of the land essentially. So like your studio that you're in, you've got all the, like the soft stuff on the wall to absorb the sound. So seismic waves and glacial soil, um, it makes it so that the waves can't travel very far and that can make the impact. It can make local shaking higher, but the waves don't travel like that far. Whereas if you look at the new Madrid event or the, um, the, the DC area earthquake, you know, that earthquake was felt up and down the seaboard. Um, so New Madrid, the area that can experience shaking is so big because it's just bedrock. And so there's nothing mm. there. It's just like the waves just are free to go wherever. And so you've got mm. all of this infrastructure that isn't uh, necessarily designed for earthquake shaking because of the incredibly low probability. Mm. Um, and, you know, the, the soil zone doesn't necessarily trigger these higher uh, requirements for shaking. So, um, you know, it would be, an earthquake out there would be felt very widely. And, um, 
you know, it, economically, it, it, it could be really bad. And that, that raises a question because we had an assumption, maybe you can correct our assumption, that if there was a Cascadia level event in, uh, in Washington, that, that that earthquake could potentially trigger, uh, you know, micro earthquakes throughout the state of Washington where there's a ton of bridges, ton of bridges cross uh, earthquakes. I mean, that's just kind of makes sense, fault mm-hmm. lines, right? Um, and so uh, is that assumption true? If you had an earthquake on the edge of Washington, would you have earthquakes throughout the state? I mean, there's certainly been instances of, um, you know, if you push one thing, you, you have the potential for, you know, causing other things to adjust. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say it's, it's, there's a very low probability of a Cascadia earthquake causing other faults to, to be triggered. Oh, interesting. Well, good to know. I will let my but, master's I mean, program I several years say, ago. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe like I can, yeah. I can reach out to my, my experts at the Pacific Seismic Network and, uh, uh, the USGS and, and have them correct me. I would love to be, uh, to be woke on, uh, <laughs> don't, please don't use that <laughs> word. Facts. No, we're, we're adults. We don't use that word. That's, oh mm. uh, man, that's funny. Okay. So, uh, we've talked about a few disasters. I kind of want to get to a few more. Um, but, uh, really the, the, the last one that I, I kind of want to really focus on, and it's kind of funny one, but, uh, I think there's a ton of lessons learned, actually. Is that 79, yes, as in 79 AD, Pompeii volcanic eruption. I mean, talk about, there, there's been movies about it. Um, you know, talk about a famous event. Why was it so famous? Is something like that likely to happen now? And what can we pr- do to prepare for it? Yeah. Um, so the the Pompeii uh, volcanic eruption, so it's Mount Vesuvius. Uh, it's a volcano. Um What's interesting about that event is, um, you know, there's, you know, the, it, it's famous for the, you know, there's the essentially like the, the casts of people, um, you know, that died from what originally they thought was ashfall um, and, and pyroclastic flows. And there's um, relatively new studies actually show they died from heat before they were covered mm-hmm. in ash. Um, so you had a pyroclastic flow, which is just super heated you know, steam and ash coming out of the mountain, but because it's, um, the ash is going to make that cloud heavier. So it it kind of falls down and flows along the ground. Um, So, you know, surviving that was, uh, was, um, was not likely, Um, you know, it's, it's hot, you can't breathe. Um, So, uh, you know, the part of the reason that, um, you know, that civilization was even right there was because it was so fertile. And it was fertile because it's volcanic soil from eruptions. So, you know, it's, you know, that, that's why we live there. Um, But I, you know, we learned, um, we learned a lot about volcanic eruptions um, from that event. But what I think is, uh, is so interesting is that if you go there today, um, people live up and down the sides of Mount Vesuvius. And um, at one point, the Italian government was trying to pay people to move because there's only one road in and out. And if there was a volcanic eruption, granted, there's in this day and age, there is so much um, so much science and monitoring of volcanoes that we generally we're not going to go from zero to 60. Like we're going to see some the bulging some in small the earth, events yeah. and bulging and, you know, rumblings beforehand. Um 
but uh, you know, it's, you know, you, you talk about evacuation and, and response planning, evacuating, you know, hundreds of people, thousands of people off of a mountain, you know, so you're, there's going to be, you know, emotions will be high, you'll have adrenaline, you know, you've got, you've always got the people that don't believe it, that don't want to evacuate. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, I think we learned about, um, you know, what can happen in volcanic eruptions. And, you know, we learned what can kill you and we learned about ash fall and pyroclastic flows. Um, but we apparently didn't learn that like the source of that is the volcano and maybe we shouldn't live on it. Yeah. Uh, that's so, but it's never happened to me, Amanda. I've never been taken out by a volcano before. Oh gosh. Um, yeah. You, t- you talk about people who just don't believe disasters, um, are coming. Uh, I, I really liked, uh, we interviewed another guy, uh, on here about a month ago and he said, if you wear your seatbelt and you don't get a car accident, were you like annoyed that you wore your seatbelt? And I thought that was such a great analogy. Like, it does you no good to to say like, oh, it's not going to happen to me, or like, who, who, this isn't real. Like this, pan- I can't see mm-hmm. the pandemic. I don't see the the RNA strand covered in fat on my fingers because that's you know what the the strand is. And so it's like, well, of course you can't. Like I don't know. It, we've been taking it super seriously, and it's disappointing when people aren't. But I would say that those people who are taking it seriously, like you're still helping out. And mm-hmm. uh, the people who do evacuate, you make life much easier for a first responder. First responders had to put their lives at risk for people who don't take it seriously and who don't get out in time, which could potentially be two different groups there. But um, excellent point. Uh, again, uh, a lot of lessons learned about just understanding your hazards and, um, you know, Take the threats in your community seriously. Don't live by them, but don't live your life around them, but but be aware of it and be um, be conscious of, of those decisions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, our, our last topic before we get into the rapid fire um, is, uh, you know, we want to talk about FEMA a little bit because, you know, I was with FEMA on the national strike team, what we call the National Incident Management Assistance Team West at the time. I think they're called the IMAT Wet Red now. I don't know. They keep rebranding. Either way, it's the National Strike Team um, per, per camera, the Poison Katrina Reform Act. You're at FEMA Region 10. You've been out there for a while doing a, a lot of really great work, obviously. Um, and so can you tell us a little bit more about FEMA Region 10? It, it's located in the, in the Northwest. What are some of the other complexities uh, that you really have to deal with out there? Yeah, so Region 10 is Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and Alaska. And um, Alaska is much bigger than people realize. Um, it's huge. And uh, we, we have a lot of uh, concerns about events. When events happen in, in Washington, for example, Alaska is very dependent on our port because a lot of their goods come out of the port of Seattle. Mm. So one of the big Cascadia impacts that we've been concerned about is, you know, well, if the Seattle port is damaged, then where does Alaska get its food shipments from? Um, but uh, I, you know, I think Region 10 is just, we have so many different uh, you know, hazards to deal with. So we have 
the earthquake hazards, we have, you know, big rivers, we have flooding. Alaska has, uh, you know, ice breakups every year. Mm. Idaho gets ice breakups every year, which is where you get these big sheets of um, ice that, uh, you know, essentially dam the river and then cause flooding. Um, we also have wildfires, uh, you know, right? I, you, you can't see out my window, I don't think, but it, it's just gray, hazy, everything smells burnt. Um, yep. The, the wildfires are just incredibly bad. Um, you know, we've got the tsunami hazard. We have landslides that are an issue every year. Um, <laughs> you know, and great. if we have an earthquake in the winter, then we can have landslides from, you know, caused by the earthquake. Mm. Um, and then, you know, like there, we have, you know, I don't know how many, we have five volcanoes in Washington state. I don't remember how many in Oregon and in Alaska. Um, so, you know, we have a lot of different hazards to deal with that have different impacts. And we also have, you know, growing population. Um, like you mentioned, people are moving to the coasts. Um, Boise has been like one of the fastest growing cities in the U.S. If you haven't been, you should check it out. It's actually a really cool city. Um, <laughs> but uh, good plug for them. Anyway, yeah, we'll over yeah right. Yeah. I mean, let's give Idaho some love. Hey, um, why not? Yeah. Uh, but I guess what I what I want to emphasize is, you know, through this conversation, I feel like, uh, you know, we, we get, um, we get attention um, in the region to the hazards that we have, but too frequently that narrative is doom and gloom, you know, that the, um, the Atlantic article about um, the big one um, about the Cascadia subduction zone a few years ago, um, like it just paints this picture of doom and gloom, which then makes people incredibly fatalistic. Um, and they go, well, we're all going to die anyways. So why do anything about it? Um, That's an interesting perspective. And, I haven't thought about it that before. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, might and, as well can't, can't yeah. do anything about it. So, yeah. Talking to coastal communities in Washington about tsunami hazards, they, I mean, they make it sound like they're going to like pull a move out of Titanic, like the old couple that just lays down in bed to sink with the ship. Oh my gosh. And it's like, there's, there's things you can do. And, um, you know, will it suck when it happens? Definitely. Like you, yeah. <laughs> things are going to be a mess, <laughs> but like we can make it suck less if we act now. Uh, um, so, uh, and I'm sure that FEMA's like way to be articulate and represent hey, that's fine. On this hey, one, but <laughs> uh, way to rock. Right. Uh, we can make it suck less. Um, so um, you, you know, should like coin that phrase, suck less <laughs> mitigation. Suck less. <laughs> yes. Um, so I, I just think that, you know, yes, we have all of these hazards, but it's also like, that's what made this area so beautiful. That's why we have these mountains and mm. rivers and, and the ocean. And, you know, there's, if we, you know, are more proactive in the design and growth of our communities, we can build stronger, more resilient infrastructure um, so that, you know, it sucks less when the earthquake happens. Suck less. I like that so much. <laughs> um, when we do a promo for you, maybe we'll just put like hashtag suck less on. Uh, oh God. Yeah, that maybe not, that's not a bad idea. <laughs> uh, okay. There could be some stupid jokes there. So we're not going to do that. Mm -hmm. um, let's see. Okay. So you talked about the Atlantic article couple years ago about Cascadia mm -hmm. and people, man, I, I haven't really thought about that too much. I mean, I guess you see that in uh, Florida, but Florida doesn't really go like that. They just think, oh, I've, I've seen a hundred of these and so I'll be fine. This is a different perspective, right? Like I'm going to die anyway. So whatever, just, you mm -hmm. know, why spend money on this? That's where it really comes down to is why spend money on this? Um, mm -hmm. 
And so I guess my original question might have been, what makes you so nervous about Cascadia? And you kind of really hit on that um, really well. Um, don't be fatalistic. Address these concerns. Um, mitigation makes you suck less uh, or makes a disaster <laughs> suck less, rather. There you go. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, so it, it's it's really important to, to note those things. Um, man, I, I just can't get past the idea that with with high in, high intensity low frequency events like that is the northwest when i think about that even wildfires you you see a majority of the wildfires in on the west coast impacting probably california or uh, areas of alaska even that are really rural they're not impacting huge communities um california on the other hand you see 100,000 people evacuated from vacaville like 3 weeks ago um and so dealing with or living in a community because you live out there um, talking about gray skies we've been bringing that breathing that in too um, how do you manage personally um, and, and, and some advice that you could give for other people hey I live in an area that could see some huge impacts here how do you stay calm and 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 how do you d- deal with that is is there a way to to kind of process that emotionally um oh that's funny <laughs> yeah not a um, psychologist I mean, but yeah Leslie yeah. <laughs> knows moment how do you do that well so like I guess for starters so you know I have been um I've been working from home since March mm. and um since March there was a there was an uh we had a large earthquake in Idaho um that was kind of in the that was in a very uh lowly populated area. So there weren't any impacts there. Um, but we had, uh, there was a big earthquake in Utah, which isn't region 10, but I've been helping out region eight, um, a lot Mm. with that. And, um, you know, COVID and earthquakes can coexist and wildfires. Um, and then we had a tsunami warning in Alaska, um, a couple, I I have no sense of time anymore. Um, (laughs) I know what you you mean. Recently there was, there was that. And, um, like, honestly, it's, it's a lot working for FEMA, especially you get these, the emails of, you know, like every hurricane that's forming and like, oh, it's moved West two degrees, like better email everybody. So it, it, it is, it's honestly, it's very overwhelming. And um, just this week, I, uh, I actually had to drop off of a webinar because I just, um, I've started like just weeping at times. Like I can't, <laughs> it just, it just happens and I can't stop it. And it's just like stress is just like trying to to escape. But um, at the same time, I think what all of this is showing us, what all of these disasters is, you know, what matters most is, is family and friends. And I'm really hoping that coming out of 2020, we can have a renewed focus on taking care of one another. And, Uh you know, like, um, uh, you know, like maybe we can figure out healthcare or childcare and, you know, that we, we focus more on protecting what matters rather than on economic growth. Um, and mm. you know, that's, that's my opinion, not, not the agencies. Um, that's a good opinion. but, <laughs> but yeah. I think, um, you know, just, and, and I think just being honest about it. Um, I, I found that the more people I tell that I'm, you know, you know, hanging on by a few threads at times, the more people are like, oh my God, I am too. It's really mm. hard. And I think just by, by sharing what's going on and not always putting on a, a strong face is supportive. 
And, um, you know, I know the wildfires are just adding a whole other element of terror to 2020. Um, but there is an element of wild, like wildfires are part of a natural process. Wildfires are required to help some plants propagate and grow forests. So while it's scary because it's impacting our infrastructure and obviously like things are getting a little out of hand, there are benefits of wildfires um, as well. So, um, you know, there's, uh, we're going to be okay. We just have to adapt and, um, you know, work on, work on our own resilience. So, you know, in terms of what people should do to be more prepared since it is, you know, natural preparedness month, um, you know, we know we have earthquakes that can happen. The first, I think the first month of, of quarantine, I like, um, I secured a big mirror that I have above my mantle. I put earthquake straps on it and secured it. And I was like, house projects. Yeah. You know, like I'm not going <laughs> to die in an earthquake in my own house. That would be embarrassing. Uh, so, you know, like little things like that. Um, like, you know, the little baby latches to put on like cabinets. Oh, yes. Open. I know very well. Yes. Yeah. So those are actually really good for uh, mitigating damages from earthquakes. Um, after oh. the, the uh, earthquake in Alaska in 2018, so many people like they're they lost all their dishes because you know when it shook their cabinets mm. opened and all the dishes just flew out that's like a four dollar fix you know yeah. like do you want to spend a couple hundred dollars on dishes and like you know a thousand on replacing your wood floors that are destroyed mm. from all of your Good dishes point. or do you want to spend four dollars on latches that are gonna annoy the hell out of you but are gonna <laughs> you know are gonna protect your dishes uh, that's so, funny well, so that you know, there's little things you can do. And, um, you know, I guess I would just, uh, I do want to mention uh, in the concept of insurance, I guess, for preparedness. Um, I have a, an elderly aunt that is, um, uh, she, she's, you know, independently living senior and, you know, she's really struggling with the whole quarantine thing. She's a social person and is, you know, she's, she's really, um, struggling with, you know, the lack of social interactions. And uh, she has this cabin in Oregon. And, you know, I was talking to her about the fires and she goes, well, you know, it's insured. I don't need to worry about it. And I just like that, that might be kind of like an older generation way of thinking about things. But, you know, we also think that way about our cars, right? Like if we get in a wreck, like, well, it's insured. That's good. I think right now is a really good time to look into your homeowner's insurance policy and look and see what you're covered for. Um, yeah. Earthqu- uh, homeowner's insurance does not cover earthquakes. Doesn't and, usually cl- uh, cover wildfires either. Right. So yeah. looking into what am I covered for, um, you know, that if that can give you peace of mind, like that's not going to stop damage from happening, mm-hmm. but in terms of your own, uh, you know, financial resilience, it's, it's going to help out. So, um, you know, I would just be aware of what you're covered for and what you're not. And if you have the financial means to, to get insurance, it's probably a good investment. Yeah. For those who are listening and are like, Oh, I need to look at that. The under your policy, they're, they're actually called acts of God. So if you go under acts of God in your policy, it will cover different disasters and you, you might have an elective, that you can add in, for example, wildfires. Wildfires are not usually covered. Um, an, another thing about that is like, um, yeah, just like going through uh, all, all of your documentations. I would say that insurance is the number one thing you have to do 
uh, when you're impacted by disaster. I always tell people, as soon as you're impacted by disaster, the first thing you want to do is call your insurance company. You can tell your fit friends on Facebook later that you're okay. You can mark yourself okay. Like, go and file a claim because when hundreds of thousands of people are, 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 are uh, filing a claim, it takes a lot of time, you know, months, even years to even get back that those claims. And so a good call out there again about like, hey, forward thinking. You've had a lot of really great call outs actually. Um, so the last thing I want to ask about FEMA, you talked about some of the projects you've been doing at FEMA. Um, we're as, as an emergency manager, emergency managers uh, in this community listening to you, you've had so many great call outs, talk about personal preparedness. You talked about reaching out to communities. Um, and, and if you're trying to do that, talk, uh, talk us through how FEMA is trying to help out communities and um, some of those activities that you found successful in, in your outreach um, that that um, other emergency managers can apply. Yeah, so um, FEMA, you know, has, has done a, a ton um, and outreach is really like my favorite thing to do. Um, in case you haven't noticed, I like to talk. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, FEMA spends, um, I mean, FEMA gets media attention for response efforts, right? But most of what FEMA does is actually moving money to state and local governments to help them prepare and to help them mitigate. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, every community has, uh, every state and every county should have a hazard mitigation plan. And a lot of those are funded by FEMA. And that's the effort that the community goes through to understand its hazard vulnerabilities uh, and to determine um, you know, what infrastructure is vulnerable and what they're going to do about it. And um, part of that process is supposed to involve a public education component and, um, or not necessarily public education, a public engagement. Mm -hmm. And so that like the, uh, that community, the citizens of that community should be engaged in that planning process. And I think most of the time, um, that is done by the community putting a plan on their Facebook page and saying, provide comments and like this, you know, this is my jam, but I'm not <laughs> looking around Facebook pages to provide yeah. comments on plans. Um, Absolutely. So I know like through my experience with FEMA, um, I worked with the, the city of Eugene and um, they actually, uh, they did a disaster movie in the park. And mm. uh, so they, uh, they had like some booths set up to ask you know, to have like maps and things of the city showing what's vulnerable, asking like, well, how should we fix it? Or which projects should we prioritize? And, you know, the public could learn that the city is being proactive in its uh, disaster preparedness, in its mitigation efforts. Mm. Um, but then they made it fun by having, you know, an outdoor movie showing of, uh, of, the, of, um, of San Andreas. Of course, and, uh, full circle you know, they, here. And they had they yeah. had popcorn and everything, so it, like it was great. Um, so yeah. I think um, you know FEMA does a lot um, that it doesn't get credit for um, in in giving money to states and locals. And um, I you know it's FEMA cannot do the planning the community planning for the communities. That's up to the community. And so yeah. I guess I would say you know, as a, um, as an advocate for FEMA here, um, if you're a community emergency manager and you want help with that planning process, 
we're here to provide technical assistance and help give you ideas. And, you know, the, the movie in the park in Eugene was, um, you know, I was teaching a class on mitigation planning and I just kind of threw out there, if somebody wants to do a disaster movie night, I will come down there on my own dollar and help you with it. Um, awesome. But like, how do we make this cool? You know, we green building um, and, you know, lead certification is, you know, sexy in sustainability. Like, how do we make disaster mitigation cool? We have all these disaster movies that everybody loves. Like, let's leverage that somehow. Mm -hmm. um, so there, there's a lot of ways to improve uh, community engagement and make it meaningful. Um, and, you know, the, I think so, so frequently I hear um, people complain about hazard mitigation plans and how it's just checking the box and saying, well, FEMA has requirements, but it's your plan. Like make the plan useful for you. Yep. And I think that's, that's lost in translation oftentimes. So um, FEMA is doing a lot of, of good work, um, despite what we're often portrayed as in the media. And, mm. um, you know, I guess I, I just want to throw out that, like, especially through our new program, um, we have a new grant program called BRIC. It's uh, building is it resilient infrastructure and communities and it's this huge you know multi-million dollar pot of money that is for communities to build uh and update retrofit infrastructure to make it more resilient and mm. so it's really up to local communities and state government to apply for those funds um Talking about emergency management, trying to be cool. You know what's cool? The Disaster yeah. Tough podcast is pretty cool. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, so th that, that's a good point because I, I've been trying to push very hard on getting people away from doomsday prepping, which if you talk to anybody with, uh, how do I even say this? Like, in, in any level of intellect, as soon as you t start talking about disasters, the number one thing is like, oh, I don't want to deal with doomsday prepping. Like, okay, mm -hmm. like, I understand that's perception. Like, and there's, we're not talking about militias here. We're not talking about building bunkers under the ground. We're talking about building codes. And we're talking about understanding the, the hazards that are in your community. We're talking about evacuation routes. We're talking about, you know, sustainability and working with your environment. Those are all logical things. Insurance, that is the most logical thing you can think of. And so, like, just to walk through that, um, you know what's cool? Not dying is pretty cool. You know, what's cool is like, oh, there's a hurricane, but I could watch it uh, on the news and I was totally fine. Or there's a wildfire and wow, that's really powerful to watch nature do its thing. I'm okay. You know, that's cool. Uh, it's not cool to to be in a shelter and to uh, saying, okay, I don't have any of my documents. I don't have any of my, my family pictures. I, I'm worried about my dog, Zoe. Maybe that was too specific. Uh, you know, whatever it is, that's not cool and it's not fun. And I don't think anybody who has lived through that will ever say like, oh, I'm glad I did that. You know, mm -hmm. um, maybe they'll say I'm grateful for the lessons learned, but, um, you know, you don't want to deal with loss of life. Uh, so great call outs there and great things about FEMA. Um, I, I do think that counties are starting to change. This is going to be a plug. Uh, counties are starting to change how they're doing hazard mitigation plans because Doberman Emergency Management, of which I own, we really focus on applying data to communities, making customized plans, getting away from like that cookie cutter, like checking the boxes. And as we've been working with different counties of that, um, 
the first response is like, well, we don't think we can get, or we don't think we're going to be working with multi-million dollar mitigation uh, programs. And it's like, no, that's not about this. This is not about that. This is about, hey, did you know an, an early warning system that you can apply for a grant for from the federal government could help out the people eva- evacuate a wildfire or an earthquake or, you know, whatever, tsunami. And then, like, starting to roll that back and, like, putting it into the scale that matches their community. It's not always mm-hmm. these $100 million projects. They are uh, sometimes community outreach, you know, a- activity nights, uh, you know, that engagement. And so just understanding how that works and the, the data behind that, how it can help them. Um, we talk about uh, active shooter training and the people with training and versus people without training and how they've responded to disasters. Um, it, you know, it really shows uh, the, the impact of just understanding your disaster and what to do in your disaster. So uh, plug for Doberman, but um, great call out to about understanding people and working with people. Um, so our last section, we've kept you on pretty long, but you've had really great, uh, great comments. Um, and so what we're going to do really quick is rapid fire, just really quick responses. One of those stupid, uh, you know, posting a picture, no explanation, no whatever things that you see that kind of level of, uh, of detail here. Um, so let's just jump into this last section, rapid fire, name the top three engineering projects that impresses you the most about the mitigation efforts within region 10. Sure. So I already talked about tsunami vertical evacuation projects, so I'm not going to talk about those. Okay. Um, I do want to do a shout out to uh, uh, Washington Department of Transportation replaced uh, the Alaskan Way viaduct. It was this double decker structure that was um, pretty much an exact replica of the, uh, the Cypress Street viaduct that collapsed in the 89 Loma Prieta earthquake. Um, so it's taken years, but they replaced it. They, they made a tunnel that is, um, you know, seismically safe um, is, you know, they've looked at, you know, earthquake and tsunami uh, potentials for that. So such a cool uh, infrastructure and engineering project. And then I guess for my number three, um, not in region 10, but uh, the, the LDS church or the, the Mormon temple in Salt Lake City mm. is currently undergoing a base isolation project, which is where they put the entire structure on like these big, um, essentially like rollers. So when an earthquake happens, the structure will be safe. So they're actually like scaffolding the entire temple and holding it in place wow. so that they can dig out underneath it and put it on base isolators. So just like epic feat of engineering, so cool. Mm. And, um, you know, and asking them why they're doing that, they're like, well, why wouldn't we? We want the structure to be around forever. That's like, awesome. That's a great you. answer. That's so cool. So, yeah. Um, yeah, like shout out to Utah for that. Um, yeah. And it's funny, I actually realized I was using my, my Utah mug. Oh my gosh, you have like all these product placements. So your, your Utah <laughs> mug, your, your like water bottle, your, your book, that's awesome. It's, um, for yeah. those who don't know, the LDS churches, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they have um, I, they have a lot of engineering projects. They they want their stuff to last, right? Um, and so that's that's really cool. Um, I've been through obviously Salt Lake uh, as I've talked about before because I, I worked um, with Red Cross, and um, to to have them go through and and to really. Um, take care of the things that they build. I mean, they understand that they live, 
Uh, we did a, we worked with the governor and um, the governor's office for the state of Utah and um, the, the major highway, I believe is I-15. I could be wrong, but the, the major highway that goes through Salt Lake, um, it would basically become an island because it goes right through where there's two major fault lines. And so they've taken a lot of effort of not just securing infrastructure, but also the LDS church has done so much on community planning and working with um, the partners out there, um, you know, with the, with their, within their church alone, Utah is very well prepared. In fact, um, another big shout out to Utah is uh, we were talking about homelessness before. They were the first state to end chronic homelessness, um, which basically means if you're homeless for more than a year, the state took all the funds that were going to go to hospitals and jails and partnered with private companies, and they built long-term housing um, that provided a social worker, uh, which gave them access to um, you know medical and health and um, be able to get a bank account so they get a job, and they treat uh, homelessness like a mental health issue, and they were able to reduce their, their cost by like half. This was like 10, 15 years ago, and so a uh, big shout out to them for, for, you know, emergency preparedness efforts uh, on those levels. So getting away from rapid fire, I but good, cool. yeah, the really cool study. Uh, that was what I argued. Um, the reason why I know that is that's what I argued for that theoretical back, uh, back in the day when I said, hey, if you have 11,000 homeless people, what do you do? And I actually did some research and it was Utah that popped up. Um, okay, so... What are five things that people should do inside their homes to be earthquake safe? You named one, right, with uh, the baby latches. So what are the other four? Mm -hmm. um, secure the heavy stuff. You know, if you've got TVs, mirrors, uh, you know, like bookcases that aren't built in. Um, earthquake straps are really cheap. I um, mean, just anchor them to the wall. Um, uh, secure your hot water heater is important. I feel like most modern homes have that done already, but, um, you know, if your hot water heater falls over, not only can you have a flood, but, um, you know, just, just bad in general. Yeah, that would that. suck. Yeah. Um, suck yeah, less. Um, no. yes, make it suck less. Secure the hot water <laughs> heater. Um, if you have a chimney, um, you know, especially if it's a brick chimney, um, bracing that is really important. Um, in an earthquake, that mm. chimney, uh, it can either fall down and like off the house, um, you know, in which case you, you don't have a chimney and hopefully there's nobody walking by, but it can also fall into the house um, and, mm. you know, do some significant roof damage and, you know, kill somebody. So brace your chimney. And then, um, you know, consider earthquake retrofits and earthquake insurance. So earthquake retrofits, um, modern seismic building codes really didn't exist until like the 1980s. So if you're in a home that was built before then, um, the most common thing is that in an earthquake, the home will slide off of the foundation. Mm. And it's really not that big of a, an issue to fix. Like I, it, it's not that hard to fix. And I, I want to say it's between like five and $15,000, depending on where you're at. As opposed to if you're in an earthquake and that house slides off the foundation, you know, any piping connection that you have is, is gone. Like the entire house can just be destroyed. So, yeah. um, you know, think about that short-term investment uh, for long-term benefits on that one. Awesome. Okay. What's your favorite animal? A bison, actually. What? Like, like a buffalo. Yeah. Yeah. I know what a bison. <laughs> oh, like a buffalo. Oh, 
<laughs> okay, first of all, they're, they're incredibly strong, resilient creatures. They were almost extinct in the U.S. We've brought them back. They're like the national park <laughs> logo. Um, they're they're just they're amazing creatures. Okay, I thought you were gonna say being Leslie Nope. I thought you were gonna say mini horse, which is actually my favorite so, animal. But then you said that's bison. Actually, my my karaoke name is Little Sebastian. Um. <laughs> I'm offended by that. Uh, no, uh, that's... A, oh, it's like a buffalo. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, okay, well, that's like the level of weird I would suspect from Leslie Nope. Um, yeah. So that's cool. My favorite animal for a long time was a uh, walrus. So who knows? Um, yeah, super random. Okay, uh, talk about rumor control. Um, just for... For the final sake, you know, for everybody to hear verbatim, should you hide in a doorway, under a doorway, or not in an earthquake? No. Thank you. No. Yes. Uh, I, I I appreciate the rock going on to, to um, oh my gosh, who was it? It was like nighttime television. And he was promoting earthquake safety after San Andreas, and he was trying to do his best. But then he was like, yeah, you should definitely hide under a doorway. And I was like... No, no, and also, yeah. like for the record, no triangle of life. That that's don't do that, um, <laughs> and don't run outside either. Like mm. that's running outside is bad. That's where things are flying and falling. Don't run outside. Mm. Drop cover and hold on. And um, I guess one little plug: uh, the Great Shakeout is October fifteenth um, at ten fifteen a.m. in your time zone. Um, and so while you're at home, because we all are at home now because of COVID, um, drop cover and hold on at home. Where would you do that? And what might fall on you? And, uh, you know, fix it so it doesn't fall on you. Make we, it suck less. We, ch <laughs> yeah, we chose the wrong date. We chose the wrong date to do your episode. What? October 15th? Okay. Well, now you give people a heads up. This is emergency mm -hmm. planning. So that works. Okay. A, yeah, and you know what? I would love to do. You know, I can I can help you out with some stuff for for on the day of shakeout. To, awesome. We can we can do a disaster tough shakeout. That's awesome. Let's do that. Okay. Very cool. Okay. So, uh, what is the most important thing in life? Friends, waffles, or work? You better get this order right because you're the <laughs> Leslie Nope of disasters. Uh, can I say yes? Ooh, that's pretty close, <laughs> but ooh, okay. Uh, I think it's, I think she said it's friends, but waffles and work are pretty close. Well, I would say my work is with friends and mm. waffles fit in anywhere. Right. So, no, oh, that's a good point. Okay. That's fair. <laughs> it's fair. Uh, okay. If an emergency manager wants to learn more about FEMA region 10 earthquake, tsunami, or volcano risk and mitigation, where can they go to learn more? So um, FEMA's site ready.gov is really um, the best uh, jumping off point to learning more about the different programs um, that support mitigation and learning about hazards. Um, there's a lot of resources on there for uh, National Preparedness Month as well. So I would definitely check out ready.gov. Um, but if you want to learn more about earthquakes specifically, um, uh, USGS's page is great, and they actually um, they have a really cool Twitter account that's um, at USGS underscore quakes, where they tweet out about you know ongoing earthquake sequences, hazards, and history, and things like that. 
Awesome. Yeah. So make sure you follow those things. And um, as an emergency manager myself, even though I've done a ton of research and uh, you know, do this on, on the daily. I also still use those resources, um, especially ready.gov and to, to always make sure that, you know, you're following current best, uh, best practice. And so great resources to call out there. Um, so last question, obviously the most important question of the podcast, what is the best podcast for emergency managers? So I think I, Legally, I have to say the FEMA podcast. Oh my gosh. <laughs> this whole episode but, is a waste. But I know, it's a waste. <laughs> You've wasted your time. Um, but I think what you're doing with the Disaster Tough podcast on getting emergency managers to actually talk about the philosophy behind what we do and you know, get away from checking the boxes is I think what you're doing is, is absolutely wonderful. Um, but I also, just because you know, I'm such a fangirl of... of the the Beyonce of earthquakes, Lucy Jones <laughs> recently started her own podcast called Getting Through It, um, where she talks about um, earthquakes and she's talked about COVID and she's just, she's really great at talking about um, taking scientific data and making it uh, publicly accessible. And then my last one, just because I'm a super nerd, um, there's this podcast called Ologies, um, O-L-O-G-I-E-S, and she interviews um, just subject matter experts in their fields. And it's super fun, exciting. And she's, you know, interviewed, um, her first episode is with a volcanologist. So, you know, someone who mm. studies volcanoes. Um, and, you know, they talk about, uh, you know, the, the science to disasters, everything like that. But even um, there was an episode on um, museology or museum, the, like somebody who works in museums. Um, and uh, this was a few years ago, but uh, he ran a museum in uh, California and was talking about having to have an emergency plan for all the artifacts in the museum and uh, get, taking everything out because of the wildfires that were coming through mm -hmm. and then having the recovery plan in place to put everything back. And just, you know, the, the world of emergency management, uh, it extends, it interfaces with everything, right? Because if a disaster happens, it's interrupting the fabric of everything. Mm -hmm. And um, I think, you know, hearing about these other subject matter experts that are doing good work in their fields um, and hearing, you know, that they, they care about what they're doing. And so they're trying to be, um, you know, they want to make sure it stays around for forever. So um, I just throw that out there too, is like another, another good one. But for the record, uh, Disaster Tough is really cool, and um, I, I really do like what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, you nailed that question. You know, the great thing about editing is I could just edit everything else and just, no, I won't do that. Uh, seriously, Amanda, uh, thank you so much for coming onto our podcast, for, for sharing your insights. You talked to us way longer than uh, we asked you to talk to us for, from mm -hmm. FEMA, but you gave us so many great inputs, and, uh, you know, again, we're really grateful um, if you liked what Amanda was saying today, which we definitely liked, so make sure you like it too. Uh, the way you can do that is to give us a five-star rating of this episode and subscribe to the Disaster Tough Podcast. You can also follow us on the Disaster Tough Podcast Instagram page where we're going to be posting a little bit about um, Amanda and her, the great work she's been doing there. And um, if you have comments, questions, and you want to follow up more about what she was talking about, either put a comment on those posts on social media. Again, that's Instagram at Disaster Tough Podcast 
or you can send us an email at info at dobermanemg.com. Again, that's info at dobermanemg.com. 